Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading, a podcast that discusses all those painful books you were required to read during school and what they mean to us now, usually with cocktails. <laughs> My name is Amanda. Um, I'm an English major and writer for Fangirl Nation and also professionally in the real human world. I'm also currently head cocktail enthusiast. Yay! <laughs> I'm Victoria. I'm a hot mess and also a former English major who graduated in three years and regrets entering society that quickly. Accurate. Yeah. So, background of what we do here is we pick a book that we were forced to read in elementary school, high school, college, school, 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 life school, and we go over kind of the background details of it, what really, really hurts about it, and um, what exactly goes on now that we are revisiting it yeah I think especially with a lot of the books that you had to read during high school um it's easy to look at them as punishments from God it's very easy to question why anyone made you read this and why it would be resonant to you then now or ever in the future so hopefully we will be able to find some lessons about these books but definitely not with this one because the book that we're discussing today is Watership Down which I'm sure has no metaphorical resonance to anyone ever. Or, as Amanda has titled this episode, Watership Man Down. (laughs) Now, we're not just here to trash books. Um, We actually both love to read quite a bit. Um, We're on Goodreads, if you ever want to see us. But uh, Watership Down is is painful. So when did you have to read Watership Down? I had to read Watership Down during freshman year of high school under the tutelage of Miss Peach. Um, and forever that name will be associated with most of the books that I had to read in high school that I now hate. Um, she apparently loved this book and thought it was very important for young people to read, and thus she imposed that will upon us, and now I still know more of an uncomfortable rabbit language than I like admitting. I was never forced to read this book in school, so I'm going to be upfront and honest about that. I just went through it via audiobook because every time I tried to start it in printed form, it, it hurt my soul. Um, we had Mr. Lawrence for freshman English, and he really didn't make us read anything except Shakespeare and then go through the Beatles, one of their albums, and just look at the songs and talk about poetry. So Yeah, you got off way easier than I did. Mr. Lawrence (laughs) understood honors English, and and I miss him for it. (laughs) So, just a brief overview of Watership Down. It's written by Richard Adams. Yes, it was written by Richard Adams um, during the 1950s, 1960s, um, because essentially he decided to be like J.R.R. Tolkien, and he was telling this story to his children, and eventually his children called him on his nonsense and said, hey, Dad, if you think that you're such a darn good storyteller, write a story. And he said, challenge accepted, children, and decided to put every unfettered thought that he ever had into a giant, painful tome of a book. That is really good if you need to defend off bullets or intruders from your home, because I really have no idea why Watership Down is as long as it is. And if you listen to the Blackstone audio version of it, they do an introduction by the author, not with him actually reading it, but someone else reading his words. And he kept talking about how he would tell these stories in the car to his girls and how they're like, Daddy, write it down. And how one night he picked up a book he was reading to them, thought it was drivel, threw it across the room and said, I can do better than that. Well, any parent who's had to tell their child a story so that they will actually go to sleep can do better than this. Can we just admit that he really is the rabbit version of Tolkien, though? Oh, wholeheartedly the rabbit version of Tolkien. 
down to the not allegory allegory and the everything. Yes. We'll we'll discuss the not allegory allegory. Don't worry. But first, I want to talk about this cocktail that you created. Yeah, so this is the Watership Down. It is based in a very expensive carrot juice that I purchased at the local HEB. Um, a local gin that is not yet a sponsor, but will be a sponsor one day. Knock on wood. We dream. We dream. Um, Saint Germain elderflower liqueur to really capture the grassiness of the cocktail. And grenadine to highlight the blood because, oh goodness, there will be blood. There will be rabbit blood. And the weird thing is, I think when we were kids, we weren't exposed to things like, um... Rabbit death? Rabbit death <laughs> until, you know, this period. Right. Game of Thrones wasn't really a big thing unless you were, like, secretly reading it in high school and yeah. college. So you weren't really expecting rabbits to die. No, and especially not as gruesomely as they do in Watership Down, which I... If I have to say one nice thing about this book, and this will be the only nice thing I say about this book, it is the best war allegory, short of really Lord of the Rings, that isn't trying to be a war allegory. For everything that it's trying desperately not to be, it is fantastic at doing that, despite Adams's continual insistence that it is not an allegory. So the basics of the book are a rabbit named Fiverr, who they rabbits don't have a word for anything past five, so no. that's always interesting. He is kind of the Cassandra figure of this. He will tell everybody exactly what's going to happen. They look at him and go, yeah, okay, whatever, buddy. Um, one day he comes to his brother and says, all right, so some shit is about to go down. We mm -hmm. are going to die. And his brother goes, yeah, okay, but, like, really, though? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna die. So they go to their basically equivalent rabbit king, President Trump, um, and say, hey, uh, some some bad stuff is about to happen. We need to go. And of course, the ruling class just kind of goes, yeah, no, uh, what, whatever. Have a great day. Status go quo. away. Um, also, guards after him. Right. Um, that then sends them being a group of dissident rabbits, I suppose, on a lovely um, Odyssey-like journey to find better pastures and to safety. Um, that ends poorly a couple of times. You meet the scariest rabbit in the world named Bigwig, uh, which I didn't think it was possible to say the words scariest rabbit in the world. Um, or adding Bigwig into that and having it still be scary. Yeah, fun fact, these rabbits all have whimsically adorable like Wes Anderson movie names. But they're all terrifying, like Hazel and Fiverr and... And Holly. And Holly. Sweet, sweet Holly. And Strawberry. But we all know, as fans of Toy Story, that Strawberry doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Not at all. Um, eventually, there is a solid conclusion, is there not? Like, there's a... I don't want to say it's a happy ending, because happy endings don't exist. Yeah. But um, there is... <laughs> There is a conclusion that is satisfying after reading several thousand words about uh, a rabbit Aeneid. Mm -hmm. And rabbits really just facing things that rabbits normally face. like poison. But with drama. Yes, but with drama. So it's kind of like narrating your cat's day. Yes. Which I've done, but if, we won't go into that. Yeah. If, if you were J.R.R. <clears throat> Tolkien narrating your cat's day, because it would be one thing to just say, and my cat's sitting in the window, but is my cat... 
elegantly, masterfully, powerfully sat in the window. <laughs> so, in between a lot of the story as well are these what do we want to call them? Like allegorical stories, yes. which are basically the rabbit religion. Yes. Um, I still can't pronounce the rabbit, like Christ figure, his name at all. Well, El- Christ figure slash, if you wanted to throw it into a trickster figure too. Is it, it's El Araya or something like that? Yeah. Um, Fun fact, I had to learn Lampine and I still can't pronounce a lot of these names. It kind of hurts my soul. It's like Ella Haraya. And I know that somebody's going to like write in and be like, oh yeah. my God. Ella Hraya. Yeah, sure. Sure. Awesome. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm from California. I don't pronounce anything correctly. It's totally okay. Texans. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> and his nemesis being Death, the Black Rabbit of Inlay, which I got to be in a high school production. That's fantastic. Because obviously. <laughs> he also is usually up against Prince Rainbow, and his sidekick is Rapscuttle. Um, so if you want a really great name, I'm just going to start calling people Rapscuttle for fun. Yeah, Prince Rainbow sounds like um, a D&D character that I would make. <laughs> Prince Rainbow sounds like half the people I know from West Hollywood. <laughs> I wish they were here. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it is interwoven with this uh, mythology within the mythology. Again, to make another Tolkien reference. It is almost like it has its own Silmarillion a little bit, but with half of the thought into the Silmarillion. So while the Silmarillion gave you time and energy and effort into explaining all of these things, uh, painfully sometimes... Uh, Adams is content to lob a softball at you and pretend like you are able to put all those pieces together. So one of the interesting things in the Blackstone audio version is Adams saying, oh, you know, it was never meant to be a war allegory. And then hitting you over the head with With discussions of the resistance and a bird that's supposed to represent the Norwegian front during World War II. Yep. Um... It, it's kind of just sitting there going, I, I, I'm sorry, it's not it's not a war allegory? Can we, can we back up? How many rabbits just died? Right, and it'd be one thing if you either lean into it or you don't write a war allegory. But I'm always frustrated with authors' intent when they say, oh, well, this isn't a thing, when it clearly is. This would be like the lady who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey suddenly saying this is a feminist virgin manifesto. It isn't. It isn't. You will not pull the wool over my eyes, woman who wrote a a fan fiction to Twilight. You aren't going to do that. Adams, you will not convince me that this isn't a war allegory. It is. And that's fine. When you admit that it's a war allegory, I will not be lampshaded into thinking that this isn't. Now part of me wants to go back and find all my Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction and just change the names and see if I can get a contract. That will be when we finally end the podcast is when we both publish our respective fan fictions. <laughs> so one of the things that stuck out to me and really just, I, I, I would have thrown it across the room if it had been a tangible book and I wasn't driving a car. Um, the bunny women in this book are mostly just considered to be baby factories. They're broodmares. They're broodmares. They go off on this big adventure and then suddenly realize, oh crap, we forgot to bring any women. And And then they kidnap a few. And then they kidnap a few and they try to convince other rabbits to go with them and it kind of just reminded me of a frat party. (laughs) A Greenpeace rabbit-based frat party? Yeah, sure. Okay. (laughs) 
it it reminded me a lot of um classical literature like it gave me like serious like aeneid odyssey vibes of like hey rando join our party like it did feel like they were making things up along which i mean fair they're rabbits uh they don't they don't have a lot of planning but it, it is frustrating because and you'll hear that a lot with a fantasy that oh well you know women can't or we don't need female characters and it's just why it's 50 percent of the population and it's definitely important for rabbits, which are a species entirely known for reproduction, which requires two rabbits of different sexes. Unless rabbits can reproduce asexually, which sounds horrifying. What I like, too, is the description of the female rabbits, how if they couldn't have their babies, they would absorb them back into their womb and then become highly aggressive. And I went, that sounds like me in college, except babies... I, I've never had a baby, and also I've never I've reabsorbed one through my body that I'm aware of. It just sounds, it, it sounds like a lot of those, um, now we admit that they're sexist, but like old things in fantasy where it's like, oh, and her ovaries made it difficult to carry the shield. Like, eh, suspicious. <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> my armor only has a breastplate. Um, don't you need to cover your arms? Nah. No, because then it hides the, maje- the majesty of my tits. As you can see, we've taken immense umbrage with the lack of female rabbit representation. <laughs> I am sad is that we're sitting here talking about lack of female rabbit representation. But to be fair, I mean, most of the time we're just trying to get any female representation. And let's admit that none of these rabbits are coded of color anyways. Like, these are all pure white Anglo-Saxon Christian rabbits. Except the one rabbit that's black. The death rabbit is black. <laughs> Tell me more about this death black rabbit that you had to be. Okay, so Inlay the Black Rabbit of Death is, um, he's really a very passive death character. Uh, most deaths in different cultures can be either pretty active or pretty passive. Inlay's pretty passive and just sort of hangs, you know, he hangs out. He's just there. He is a perpetual figure of terror and darkness. And I love him for that. Because I don't need a death that chases you down. I don't need that. I don't need, like, a Walking Dead-style death that is, you know, standing outside, chasing you down with its whatever culturally analogous sickle thing. He's just there. He's just hanging out. He's just just there. In my brain, I'm also like, okay, sickle or barbed wire wrap baseball bat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, but then imagine that as a rabbit. Like, a little rabbit that's, like, all black with, like, a tiny little scythe. I'm just imagining Rabbit <laughs> Negan now, though. Oh, that sounds great! <laughs> I love it! Goals and life, Rabbit Negan for Khan. Let's do it. Sold. So, the language. Obviously, I didn't have to read this book in high school, so I didn't have to do 14 mimeographed worksheets on it. Yeah. Um, You did have to learn the language. I bits did. Of it. I did. Um, So, I had to study the language of the rabbits, which is called Lampine. Uh, because obviously, uh, you know, I, I understand where he's going with this, that of course rabbits wouldn't use our words for things. I would hate it less if I didn't have to commit these words to memory. So there are people's names I don't remember now, but I can tell you that the Lampine word for tractor is harudadu. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of sounds like Eddie Izzard talking about a vacuum going ha-da-da-da. Yeah. Yeah, or I can tell you that a particularly nice place to eat is called Flayra, which sounds very sweet. Yeah, like that that sounds like an incantation spell in Harry Potter. <laughs> All I can think of is sugar. Flayra, yeah. yes, please. Anyway. 
<laughs> so, as, as she kind of made a reference to, Lampine is actually comes from the French word for rabbit. Very original, Adams. So, fun fact, I took Spanish in high school because my mom told me I would never need French, and then I became an English major, which means you read a lot of books that involve French. I took Latin because I said Eve all of it. <laughs> oh lord lord have mercy on our souls what soul you don't have a soul you have a demon friend <laughs> so something that i thought was really interesting i i will admit i did also read through the spark notes yes. because i'm old enough to remember what cliff notes are same and um one of the things that stood out to me is the description that really only the disadvantaged rabbits left. Yes. So it kind of, and we, we're already way political on this, and I'm fine with it. <laughs> same, same. Everything um, is political. We, you, you kind of feel akin to this in, in today's politics, where if you've been disadvantaged, or you have a friend who's been disadvantaged, or you've personally gone through being passed over due to your gender, or your lack of gender or your or, sexuality or your race or anything like yeah, that then you're you know okay well maybe we need to make a change but as you'll see with a lot of voters right now who aren't affected by current policy you know they're they're fine with the status quo they're fine with the status quo so as i'm sure a lot of you know and this will make our podcast a lot less timely or timeless but um if you're on Facebook right now, you're probably in a lot of pain, um, regardless of, of what you believe in or what side you're on, because at least one of your friends or family is calling you an idiot right now. You only get called idiot? <laughs> um, I get called a lot of things, so I started a private group for my friends. That I'm a part of. Yes. Um, and it's true. <laughs> it, it, it does all read very... Um... See, and that's where, the, again, the allegory trips it up a little bit is because they keep wanting to say these disenfranchised folk, but they're still white-coated rabbits. Not that there has never been disenfranchisement of white people, but that allegory definitely tanks a little bit in places. Um, so it is very, very interesting that it's only the disenfranchised that leave, but they also still don't believe any of the tenants that are making them leave. They still don't understand what Fiverr is saying, and they don't believe him. And really, it's Hazel that's sort of gaslighting them into going on this suicide journey. What's interesting, too, is they do get to a warren, at, like, where they're living at one point in time, and everybody seems super nice, and it kind of feels a little Stepford-y. And it's horrible. And you find out that be that's because this rabbit kind of, or not this rabbit, this uh, farmer kind of feeds the rabbit yes. and takes care of them, provided that they have some sort of sacrifice which is these new rabbits. Yeah. So it, it feels a lot like reading an older, um, you know, hospitality book where something happens and, you know, they violate the laws of hospitality and right. everything goes to hell, which it kind of does for that Warren a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you never thought that rabbit fascism was a thing, rabbit fascism is a thing. I love the fact that <laughs> we're, we're reading a book where rabbit fascism is a thing. During our current time where I'm very concerned about human fascism. It's, uh, it's I, and, and, and I'll skip ahead a little bit to maybe why this book didn't work. It didn't work when I was reading this book at 14 years old in 2004, God, I am old. Where everything was figs and pomegranates and dates and wonderful and we didn't know what an acai bowl was. 
if it makes you feel better, I graduated high school in 2003, so... I feel, I feel much better really now. really old now. <laughs> um, but that didn't resonate with me as a 14-year-old. Um, it resonates with me horribly now as a meh-year-old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> currently living under uh, the thumb of... I mean, calling him Voldemort seems offensive to Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> Voldemort's a lot more intelligent. Yeah. Voldemort, his plan somewhat made sense, but it, it all reads a little metaphorically resonant right now. And maybe if children or teenagers had to read a book like this now, maybe this might ring closer to home. Like, it'd be like a 1984 or a V for Vendetta, where during the time it's read, gasp all the allegory and it makes sense. But in 2004, in the land of post-9-11 jingoism and figs and pomegranates, this was just a weird, sadistic, bunny murder book. The weird thing is, too, on, on that note, going back and rereading, you know, the entire Harry Potter book collection, which, yeah. I'm sorry, I'll probably reference Harry Potter a lot on this show. Same. Um, going back to the, you know, the ministry has been taken, and yeah. just sitting there and being like, okay, so what can I do to quietly fight so I don't end up in a black trash bag by the end of the night and um and you were just talking about v for vendetta the other day i was um where just it's it's deeply uncomfortable going back and watching that movie or reading that comic book it is because oftentimes when you're reading it it doesn't seem like it could be real and the other one that comes to mind is handmaid's tale mm. that you know when margaret atwood wrote handmaid's look at us desperately trying not to talk about this book oh <laughs> When oh. when Atwood wrote Handmaid's Tale, like, this would never happen. What? Women subservient. They just burned all their bras. Feminism. And then you watch it on Hulu now, and that weird doublespeak sounds very analogous to what men are saying to this day. And we'll probably go into that if we cover The Handmaid's Tale, which I'm sure we'll end up doing at some point. Um, but we'll also need a lot of therapy afterwards. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what that cocktail is going to be. There's a whole part where they're talking about the main character in that book losing her credit card and losing all her financial privileges. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a family friend in the 70s who she applied for a credit card and it showed up in her husband's name and she wrote a letter back to the bank saying, that's great, but um, I want one in my name because I'm not you know, his property, I'm a professional. And the bank sent her a letter back saying, okay, well, that's great, but this is how it is. So she sent them a 10-page paperback, she was in law, um, about all the different cases where, you know, she should be allowed to have a credit card in her own name. And after about eight or nine letters, they finally gave in and just gave her a credit card in her own real name. And this is, like I said, 70s and 80s. So even when we're sitting here going, oh, that was only like 30-something years ago. It's not that big of a deal. It is that big of a deal because it, we could just snap and end up back there. Yeah, and that's, I think, the interesting part about this is that, especially with allegory, is that you think it wouldn't age well. And then oftentimes it ages better than you think, which is a little bit scary. But it's also very cyclical. So I think, again, like Lord of the Rings probably had this problem a little bit. When the book came out, obviously it was all the allegory it made sense. And then the movies came out in the 2000s, and it's like, well, nothing bad has ever happened. What are you talking about? Then The Hobbit comes out, and suddenly, oh, crap, I feel all of this allegory. <laughs> well, what's weird, too, is you'll always hear the argument, and I've made this argument before, that 
there are certain times where, you know, a, a child is just not ready for this type of book. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that you get something different each time you read a book. You do. Now, Watership Down is incredibly painful to read. I'm, I'm not going to recant on that. I'm not going to back up and be like, oh, it's it's amazing and positive. But there is something to learn from it. Um, and even with some of the crazy literature you have to read in high school, and the, you end up finding things that several years later you read back, you go, oh, okay, I get that now. Yeah, and I, I do truthfully think that if I didn't have to read this for school... It might have a similar place in my heart of, I don't know how I feel about it, but that's not bad. I do think that it being under the thumb of, I was forced to do this, uh, definitely does color the experience a little bit. And it's just, it's a dense, it's a dense read, y'all. Like, I, I cannot impress to you enough how thick and heavy and flatly written this book is. It's not an easy read. Now, there is a movie from the 70s that I do not encourage anyone to see. I've never seen it. <laughs> I'm like, tell me more about this movie. It's, okay, so I've seen it, obviously. It's graphic. It's intense. It's bloody. And all those scenes that you can picture in your mind's eye of rabbits, like, foaming at the mouth with blood and attacking each other and rabbit battle with sticks and stones... You get to see all that animated. The white blindness? Yes! Ugh. So, okay, for that part, it's kind of cool. If that, like, did something for you, if you're, like, reading it, like, I really want to see rabbits go to war with sticks and stones, nah, then, yeah, watch this. For most people, though, it was a show that their parents put on thinking, cool, animation, rabbits, and they left their kids alone with it. Is that like leaving your kids alone to watch Archer? Literally, yes. <laughs> Literally. Like, it was, tr it was a BBC miniseries in England. So, like, there's an entire group of, like, English children who are scarred by this miniseries. Because, yeah, like, it's like, oh, look, little English rabbits. You put it on the telly. And then rabbit genocide. Rabbit genocide. <laughs> Did they go into or show the scene where Big Wig gets, a, uh, hit, gets caught in the snare? Yes. Okay, so that's, I've got to say, one of the most graphic and freaky parts of this book. Visceral, yeah. Um, it's when they're in the Warren, or where they're staying at the, what looks like the happy Stepford Wife Warren, and um, they're out in the field, and so you have this rabbit who the entire time they're talking about is this big, strong, terrifying figure. Think like the former football player at your high school who like works at the grocery store but can still kick your ass. Um, or, you know, general. But I like that vision better. Um, and he's caught strangling himself in this snare and he's trying to get out and they're all trying to come up with ways to get him out. What do we do? What do we do? And somebody goes back to the, or Fiverr goes back to Fiverr the Warren, goes back. which, you know, again, nobody listens to him and he's trying to get people to come and, and help his friend get out of this snare and they just ignore him. And part of that goes to the fact that they've made a pretty big deal with the uh, farmer just to let him have these new rabbits, but yep. it's really graphic and frightening and it, it honestly goes into a whole lynching metaphor. Yeah, it's a very uncomfortable lynching metaphor, because um, I actually, I believe that uh, Big League is one of the only rabbits that's a darker brown than all the others. So, uh, uncomfortable lynching metaphor. And it goes back to the central theme of, I feel like this book would be shorter if people listened to Fiverr. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's like Ellen Ripley in Alien. 
if they had listened to her and followed standard protocol, there would be no movie. There would be no movie. It would be like, cool, we're done. Let's discuss the bonus situation. Right. Yay, back for Amanda's ninth birthday. Like, it just, it very much feels like just no one is listening to this rabbit. And it's not like he's crazy. I mean, he's a little crazy. He's a rabbit. But it just sounds like this, this book wouldn't exist if people just listened to him. Which, especially as an adult, that's where I have a hard time suspending my disbelief. As a teenager being forced to read this book, I just dealt with it. But as an adult now, it's like, pretty sure just listen to the weird rabbit who says he can see into the future? Maybe? Um, no. no. It's it's all just such a weird and strange little little property, isn't it? It is. And I apologize if you hear noise and weird things in the background. We are obviously recording in San Antonio, so... Um, Where there are wolves outside. When there's a... <laughs> 400 square miles, there's bound to be at least one or two fire trucks, emergency vehicles, um, dogs in the backyard who now need to sing along with the emergency vehicles, and there are a lot of dogs in this neighborhood, which I love, but none of them are mine. (laughs) I, yeah, I've gotten pretty used to it. The simple sounds of San Antonio at night. Yep, loud cars honking after Spurs win games. Oh, yeah. The, the oh, symphony yeah. of the city. <laughs> so, I think we could probably get more kids here to care about Watership Down if we dress the rabbits up in Spurs jerseys. Um, I think we could get more kids to care about Watership Down if it was a well-written book. <laughs> <laughs> if it was just a good book. Because I, here's where I say another nice thing. I, I lied. Here's two nice things. I think the bones of it are quite good. I think the bones of telling a social allegory using rabbits is actually quite smart. I mean, the Berenstain Bears did it for how many ever years? Sagwa, the Chinese Siamese cat, did it. Like, the idea of using animals to tell potent social stories. Yes, I use Sagwa as a reference. Uh, the, The bones of it aren't wrong. It's just the execution of those bones is so dry. Them dry, dry bones. Yeah. I mean, half the time I can't get my kid to pay attention to something unless it's told by Disney, so... So what we need is a Disney live-action reboot of Watership Down. (laughs) Well, they are making a Netflix version of it that's supposed to come out on Christmas, which is a present I would like to return. Oh my, okay. What is... What was that marketing talk? Hey, you know this book that was written decades ago about rabbit murder and rabbit fascism? and rabbit genocide, that would resonate great with the Netflix generation. You know what would be awesome if somebody was in the marketing meeting and they're like, DEATH! DESTRUCTION! Rabbits! Rabbits. For the Game of Thrones fans! Okay. There is! Watership down! And they'll be like, oh yeah, I I remember hearing about that. Okay, now, if you bill it to me as a Game of Thrones with rabbits, sold. Oh my gosh, now I want to make a Game of Thrones with rabbits! See? The... The the issue is is that Richard Adams just might not be a good writer. So now there's this whole image of a song of ice and fire just populated by rabbits. Cersei yeah. Rabbit has obviously the best outfit, but she's she still thrown off to the side and watership down. Right. No one listened to her either. Perfect. There we go. See, we did it. Some someone get Hazel an IKEA rug as a cape. <laughs> I want an IKEA rug as a cape. <laughs> But it's usually 110 degrees here. Oh, gosh. My commitment to fashion is just not there. 
Nope. Neither. Same. Same. So, obviously, this is an ongoing series where we explore books. Mm -hmm. Our next big book is going to be... The Great Gatsby. By F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitz. Um, we won't go into what I call him. Nope. Um, I'll save that for next time. You know, I think we'll have maybe more nice things to say about Gatsby, not about Fitzgerald. We could have an entire separate podcast on our mutual disliking of F. Scott Fitzgerald. But I think we have more nice things to say about the book, The Great Gatsby. Right. And interestingly enough, this was... The Great Gatsby is going to be the one that, when we ran a poll, was the number one book that people wanted us to talk about. Yeah, that seemed to be the one that people have the least fond memories about. And the most visceral response to. So, I can't wait to halfway defend Tom Buchanan. And with that, thank you so much for joining us on our first episode. Um, you can find us on Instagram at unfortunately required. We also have an email address at unfortunately required reading at gmail.com and more to come. Thank you guys. Have a great day.